welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. have arrived at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talkin, hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. Hey, Soil Cousins, it is Cola B. Talking, your hostess with the Moses of Black in the Garden podcast, but you already know that because you tuned in. But today I'm very, very pleased to sit down and have a conversation with Jeanette Ancoma Say. Did I say that right? Sure. I've been practicing. So <laughs> let me tell you all about Jeanette. She's a landscape architect, right? But she's also a trained horticulturalist. And in the field of landscape architecture, she specializes in plant design. These are things that you should know. Context clues, you all. (laughs) But with all of that being said, we're going to have a great conversation in tying in what she does and and our connection to the natural world and so on and so forth. But before we go any further, Jeanette, thank you for joining us and welcome to Black in the Garden. Thank you for having me, Cola. This is going to be a fun time. And I've never done a podcast before, so this is it's a great opportunity. Thank you for exploring yes. what some of us random designers do in the in the greater world and how it kind of comes back to our connection to nature. Ain't it? Yeah, and you are definitely welcome. And I I want to start here with you saying random designer. You're not a random designer. <laughs> you don't really consider yourself to be random. No, I, I don't. Um, you know, having a background in horticulture before going into landscape architecture, and horticulture is my the tool, my crutch in landscape mm-hmm. architecture, there's always this fuzzy line between are you a landscaper? Are you a designer? Mm. Are you an architect? Are you a, and then the last question is like, what is a landscape architect? Um, Answer so that, please, because <laughs> you beat me to it. So I want to get into all of this for the layman. Sure, sure. You know, a landscape architect is a design professional that utilizes the, the the site, the landscape. We we work with the environment. We work with our site context to help shape and create spaces. Mm. We also work with um, with natural resources to create all these ecosystem services. You know all the wonderful benefits that we get from our vegetation and and our soil. We we undertake the study of analysis of materials, of hardscape. Uh, we do public engagement. We create Ooh. everything that you can really see outside of a building. And sometimes even you know above and below grade to some extent, we help to navigate how all of these pieces work together in, in the environment. You know, if you think you've got a wonderful plaza out there, somehow a landscape architect has been hopefully inspirational and worked on that space because you'd be able to get the sense of how it flows, how people move, where to go to, how to get to Mm. places for seating and for comfort, for trees. You know, we work with amenities, um, playgrounds, uh, fitness areas. We, you know, shelter structures. We put all of these tools within the realm of what we do to create 
really safe, wonderful outdoor experiences for every scale, residential, public, academic, institutional, you know, you name it. Um, we have so many different skill sets that we rely on. It makes us quite different. You know, we, we mm -hmm. get into the weeds, literally. Some of us can really get into the weeds. I'm one of those. And there's those, yes, who, are so <laughs> there are those mm -hmm. who are so finite with materials and texture and how they all work together and making sure they're safe. And it's just a symphony. Everything we do is like a big symphony to all these pieces together to really make this wonderful functional environment. Sometimes it's things you don't see because we are working for the environmental benefit, right? Mm -hmm. It's not always something you can absolutely understand the craft has been involved with. So it's, um, it, it has so many arms to it. Yeah. The profession that there's something for everyone. You know, if you really believe in policy, there's a way to get that in there. If you really strongly want to do more community fit, you know, spaces and um, working with the public, there's always that aspect to it as well too, um, be it private sector or public sector. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot there's, there's, there's a lot, there, there's a lot of avenues and yeah. we're not a very large profession compared to, to architects and engineers, but we are mm. a critical component in that whole network of the design world and absolutely function. And I love that explanation. Very beautiful. Uh, one of my favorite things about Jeanette Soil Cousins is in the conversation we had in preparation for this episode, she just explains everything so poetically and <laughs> makes everything sound like, oh yeah, maybe I should try that. You know, I get very, uh, as an artist and a creator, I get very um, excited and stimulated by uh, that type of expression. So I just want to give you your flowers for that. Oh, and what I'm hearing in the description of landscape architecture, landscape architects, as far as the people who do it is, y'all are truly, truly unsung heroes because there are so many elements of our life, especially for those of us who enjoy places like public parks and like you said, plazas and stuff like that. There are just amenities and uh, a comfort and you know the things that we, the way that we engage in these spaces and we don't really think about like, well, who put all this together? Who made sure that this slide was over here? So my kids wasn't tripping over the monkey bars to get over, you know, and, and who put this park bench over here and, and why is it set up the way that it's set up? Mm -hmm. But we're going to get a little bit deeper into that because so much to unpack with that. But let's go back to the beginning, as I understand that you are Ghanaian. And let's go back when you hear all of this, Soil Cousins, then you'll understand the richness that she brings as far as her perspective to landscape architecture. And, and we're going to tie it all together. Tell us about your parents and your upbringing and just kind of unpack the origin story that is Jeanette. I always think about this a lot because sometimes the, the journey seems so off the beaten path. And you never know if you're ever going to find yourself back on the straight path. But eventually mm. all the pieces connect and it becomes this beautiful art piece, right? It makes sense after a while. All these pieces become it's like a collage, right? Life is a collage. So mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're correct. I am a Ghanaian immigrant. Um, my family, my father was, uh, he was one of the, I think they call it the big four 
in the West African culture, you know, it could be an architect, engineer, um, mm. doctor, accountant. He was the accountant. But as part mm. of his studies and growing up for him, he, he did a lot of uh, land surveying as well. And it was just part of his training. And our family had received the opportunity um, as Ghanaians to uh, to operate a poultry and uh, produce farm in Monrovia, Liberia in, in the 70s and 80s. So we were living there. And that was sort of my first experience with plants, right? Some people have, you know, grandparents' houses and woods and forests. I mm-hmm. had beach and tropical because I'm from the equator, right? So Ooh. some of my really seminal moments of memory were standing, you know, at a school, a school facility and having these massive shrubs around me with all these multiple, multicolored, you know, bracts of flowers and thinking, ah, wow. oh, this is wonderful, right? Come mm-hmm. to find that, you know, 20, 18 years later or something of the sort, not even, you know, 15 years later in my undergraduate studies, that was a lantana shrub, right? And in West Africa, mm. Lantana is a six to eight foot beast. It's not that little thing that you have as a as an annual in the U.S. Mm-hmm. or in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, and it's woody, really woody, firm. So that's how some of my first memories really started of just being around plant material. Also having a sugarcane farm as part of our business property. You know, you have Ooh. all of these. You have mango trees, lemon trees, avocado trees. You know, you have all these, this vegetation that is beautiful, shade, fun, productive and edible, right? So that kind of cemented my mind that those were memories for me of home that came when we immigrated in the late 80s to the States. And so I always would find my world sort of trying to find those feelings again and that enjoyment of the thing that really connected me to home through some of the vegetation, the colors, all of the things I experienced. Couldn't ever really find it. But eventually, <laughs> eventually, um, I had so many special and unique opportunities that just came about through different experiences, traveling, playing the violin for 15 or 16 years, going abroad and having all these great opportunities where I got to see gardens again in a new space, mm. new kind of gardens, different kind of trees. Yeah. You know, they start to shape my landscape and memory of, ah, this seems familiar or what is that? Um, and eventually I, I really wanted to, I, I knew I wanted to work with people to some extent. Mm-hmm. I, I knew I liked science. I knew I liked biology. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I knew I one of the first after school classes I ever had or groups was a environmental club. This was, you know, as a 14 or 15 year old where you start learning about the earth and being good stewards and mm-hmm. having, I remember the teacher had, I think one of the first Priuses I'd ever seen in mid to late um, 90s, you know, like 95. A Prius, you said? Yes. I was like, she has a fancy Prius car. What is this all about? So, you know, starting to learn about um, just environmental stewardship, recycling, all those basics, right? I really enjoyed the the fixings of biology, like what goes into it. Um, And I thought, well, I'm going to be one of the big four. It's it's my duty as a Ghanaian child. And I'm going to do medicine, (laughs) make my family proud. Um, Absolutely. That's the only way. And so, but I realized, well, I want to, I really still want to work with plants. So why don't I do plant biotechnology, right? I'm still working with medicine to some extent. I'm contributing to the medical field. I eventually, you know, had somebody in class who told me, well, if you really like plants, you should really think about horticulture. 
And I said, mm-hmm. hmm, I'm not sure about this. However, you know, let me give it a shot. And it doesn't sound like that was one of the big four. It, it wasn't one of the big four, but it ended up being something that even my father, who was one of the big four, was really pleased with because it kind of went back to the roots of our culture um, and of, of being with the land. So, you know, I found horticulture. It was very welcoming and warming. We were a very small, intimate class. Uh, the late Dr. Jerry Williams at Virginia Tech. Um, I think he was one of the first Black PhD horticulture um, candidates from University of Maryland back in the day. He was just so welcoming and so excited about he, he was so passionate about horticulture. It didn't matter what I looked like. He will sell anyone on it because he said, this is just the place for you. I, I can see that. you here. And Dr. Jerry Williams, he said? Dr. Jerry Williams. Virginia and, Tech? I'm just taking it. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he was a, a small fruits and crops guy, which I really wish I spent a little bit more time in that realm with him because I spent 14 years teaching edible design courses um, mm. as an adult. And... Um, the things I could have learned from him if I had focused a little bit more on that would probably just blow, my, blow, blow me in different ways. But he was so, source. yes, yeah. But he was just so open and welcoming and opened this. You know, he was like, "You got to join us. We we would love to have you." Mm-hmm. And I did. I jumped in. I jumped in, and I loved it. I loved every bit of it. I mean, it was such a moment in my perennial identification class when I came face to face with Lantana as a 19 year old again. And it took me back. Took me to back to the, the memory. Took me back to the beaches of Liberia on the shore. And thinking That's, I oh. remember I remember sitting underneath that plant as a shrub, yes. dwarfing me. And here I am studying this officially, right? Mm-hmm. As what mm-hmm. I want to do as part of my career. So it was such a moment for me that I, I've I've thought about a lot recently because it 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 was something that I was so thrilled about, but I realized I know a lot more about this plant than I, than I can say because it's from it's from my world, it's from the equator. But um, you know, I went into the landscape contracting part of, of the profession um, in horticulture, but we still learned everything. We learned how to build, you know, building furniture and trellises and so forth in the gardens there. We had some great faculty there. So many perennials, so many annuals, so many everything, right? Annuals here for me will be tropical. I had a really unique opportunity. Nobody wanted to hire me as an intern because I had no experience in horticulture, but I did get a shot with the American Horticulture Society as one of their four or five interns that one year. I'm in 99, I think. And it opened my, my eyes to so much because we did everything as an intern, right? You tended mm-hmm. the gardens, lots of gardens. You helped to reshape and replant the gardens. You helped with the education when the kids came for the children's garden. You talked to individuals. You helped plan parties. You worked on themed gardens. You know, Dr. Mark Cathy was sort of our leader um, that summer. And he would tell us, we're going to do a white garden. So we would all do re- research and look at all these white plants that bloom in the evening and were fragrant and all of these wonderful mm. things to do. And he, you know, he took us on trips. I got my first taste of Swarthmore, of Morris Arboretum, of Chanticleer, all these places I never yes. imagined in my life being like to go and see, you know, because it's just these dreamy places. But to yes. get in there, you're like, man, this is a wonderful space. Chanticleer. And then, 
It just sounds fancy. And I've heard of it before. It's on my bucket list for like this year. I'm you must go. You must go. We try. Where it. is it though? I should know this. <laughs> Chanticleer is, um, it's in the Brandywine region. It's in this really wonderful space in, in Pennsylvania where you've got Longwood, Chanticleer, mm -hmm. um, the Nemours, all these just great horticultural rich mm. You know, yeah, institutions that just feed your soul and your mind and your body. And it's just, it's caught in the pleasure garden for a great reason. Um, I'm glad that you <laughs> mentioned that because that was literally what I was going to say next. I've recently been introduced to the term pleasure garden as I am learning all of the different aspects of the types of public gardens. And when I heard pleasure garden, I was like, let me go to those first. <laughs> <laughs> it, it definitely restores your soul. Um, but that one summer with that, all that experience, with the mm -hmm. hands-on, with the program, with the education, with the children, with the fixing and the, the working and learning from a great a, a horticultural institute knowledge data bank like Dr. Mark Cathy gave me this, this world of like, wow, there's so much you can do. And then it wasn't until second to last year or last year, we had this history of landscape architecture and landscape design course taught by a landscape architect, Robert McDuffie, who's also a really fantastic um, a photographer. So he, he knew how to draw you into class and presentations because those photographs were just, mm -hmm. you know, you, you're like, I want to I wanna be there. It's an advertisement. Oh yeah. It wasn't mm -hmm. only I want to be there. It started telling me, I want to make that. I want to make that so I can be there. I want to make that so others can be there. And That's a you great know, way to teach. He, it, it, it was intoxicating. It really was. Inspired. I mean, and, it was truly oh, inspired yeah. teaching is what it sounds like. Oh yeah. And, you know, and he had a good personality too. So it, it made, <laughs> it made it easy, but, um, you mm -hmm. know, seeing some of those images and, and learning about the designers of this, um, and the, you know, the, like the, I believe, you know, he had showed some, some beautiful landscapes from Oma Van Sweden, a really wonderful perennial plant driven and just really fine craftsman landscape architect firm still to this day in Washington, DC. And he would show you, I think like Middleton Place, which I believe has the rice paddy butterfly pond and all of these what? elements. And <laughs> I'm <laughs> probably getting half incredible. of this wrong. I'm probably getting some of this wrong. It has been almost 25 years, but, um, and then also the, 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 the Sissinghurst and what you have in Italy and in France and in the UK. And he would show you all of these and talk about how, you know, how they get created, right? He's talking about mm -hmm. these are spaces that people also have made and built um, and that there is this craft, even from horticulture, that you can apply this and create this as well. Um, you know, we did design, we did AutoCAD, you know, engineering kind of classes too, all in horticulture. I mean, so they gave us the tools to really be able to go out there and know how to build and create spaces of all scales. You know, it was a small scale design mm -hmm. course. Um, and you could you could just see how, meaningful it was for communities as a whole. Um, and then even my summers after, you know, throughout the rest of my college tenure, I found myself going back as um, like as a special uh, contract designer intern for American Horticulture Society, River Farm. So I was working in individuals' gardens as like their own private estate gardener, but I was mm -hmm. having to fix slopes with you know, rocks found on site and boulders and going mm. to the nursery center and being like, I need to have some materials. Don't really know what I'm doing. But, yeah. you know, actually building it 
making solutions and trying to deal with you know erosion and and swampy areas and drainage yes. and all of that with my hands with different materials in order for me to do my landscape design the way I want it to. So I, there was all of these fine techniques that you just mm -hmm. learn in the field, which is so critical. And I just learned by default, you know, and I, I came back twice, I think two summers to do this for different individuals, all under the umbrella of River Farm from that first internship. Um, and then I realized that I loved the feeling that I got seeing some of these images and I got from creating these spaces and I wanted to do more. I wanted, you know, mm. however I can put horticulture and my plants in a pedestal, let me do it. And my professor, Robert McDuffie, said, you might want to really consider landscape architecture. I agreed without understanding the financial um, <laughs> implications of getting my graduate degree, but, mm. um, but, I, but I wouldn't change it. Um, you know, I felt he's like, you're, you're going to have this skill set of plant knowledge that is so deep and so rich that you are only going to be mind. an asset. You'll only be an asset when you get into the landscape architecture world. Um, and in my mind, I kept thinking, well, I hope I can be accepted in that world because I'm, you know, some people just look at me as a plants person. Um, and now today, some people just look at me as a landscape architect, but I'm mm -hmm. still both. Um, and so I, I did that. I, I went to Cornell and I, I got my landscape architecture master's degree, utilizing, learning all the things that you need to learn, like real defined, I knew site analysis from a site perspective, but the level that the landscape architecture profession goes into is much deeper than I would have known purely just from horticulture, unless I worked many years to understand it. Um, yeah. And I did, but you know, there's just some things you don't you don't encounter to that extent. Um, and so I was really able to start to learn how to really make those spaces and shape them so that they are successful for humans for habitat, for community, while still never letting go of my horticultural hate on top of it. Yeah. Right? Even if yeah, it's simple. So I was introduced to you uh, by a one of your, I guess you would call them colleagues or at least mm -hmm. associates, Mark Miller, yeah. who mm -hmm. is also another, uh, one of the handful of Black landscape architects. <laughs> and in conversation with Mark, uh, and he'll be on another episode, but in the conversation with Mark, he indicated that he is not a plant person. And that kind of, that not kind of, it really threw me off because I was like, wait, you're talking about landscape architecture. I'm just assuming this is Black in the Garden. Like, let's talk about plants. What do you mean? How are you coming to me telling me that you're not into plants? And so I love that you indicated that um, you were specifically encouraged to get deeper into, you know, your, what we call our horticultural bag <laughs> so that you could be that much more of an asset to the field of landscape architecture. And yeah. indeed, it, you know, you saw the opportunity, you reaped the benefits of that. And um, there's something that I really want to emphasize again, and just going back to um, discussing the juxtaposition of the, the way that you felt about your landscape of memory in mm -hmm. Ghana and growing up between Ghana and Liberia, Liberia. right? Mostly Liberia, yeah. And here's a question. When did you, when did your family immigrate to America? And what was the culture shock like for you when you noticed the difference in the temperature, not the temperature, that's not what I'm looking for. The, oh no, it, it was uh, there. That was a shock that was there for sure. 
because you moved, <laughs> didn't you move immediately to the East Coast? You moved to the Virginia area, right? Close mm-hmm. to DC. Yes. So, so the we, culture shock, the vegetation, the horticulture shock, whatever you want to call it, but the shock. <laughs> Let's get into that. Life shock. Um, I was seven, eight years old. Um, and I, I question it because everything gets fuzzy, right? It, we we mm-hmm. fled the coup happening in Liberia. So mm. um, we were leaving a war and it's, you know, interesting. We talk now with my almost nine-year-old about what's happening in the world, right? So I can mm-hmm. I try to explain to him those those parallels and how it's parallels for a lot of people we know in, in our community today. Um, and we came to the D.C. area. Um, I came with my mother only. My siblings came earlier. Uh, they were much older than I was. And my father stayed behind to, um, to as best protect the farm, the business, and secure it for whomever was going to take over it. Right. And wow. sort of risk risk his um his safety and his life to finish taking care of business, to take care of his family abroad, however they were gonna survive. You know, this that was a risk to you. stay behind. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um and so when we came, it was different, right? Wearing coats, what what are these things? Uh winter, <laughs> seeing snow. What um, is winter? You know, Having, you know, I was fascinated by snow the first time I saw it. And then after a while, I was like, can this be over? Period. (laughs) Because it is an interesting thing to see. And there's, you know, there's that poetic kind of beauty to it. Um, But you get over it quick. I mean, it was it was a lot of adjustment. You know, I didn't speak much about my my mother. My mother um, was a housemaker before we moved to the States. And then when she moved, moved to the States, she was the primary until my father came working multiple jobs. But her thing, and coming from a very big family on my mother's side, mm. we have some of the best cooks. We have some of the best mm. best cooks in Ghana from our tribe. I'll just put it out there. Anybody can try and, and fight me. We will win. Um, I don't want to fight. From, I want to fight. We're, the, we're from the Fonzi <laughs> tribe, and everyone, you know, cooking and food is, an, is a form of love. It builds mm. community. Um, and everything we cooked and ate has some connection to the ground. You know, your cassava. I imagine much of it your, being cultivated. Absolutely. Your, yeah. What you've grown. But also she was a pretty awesome cook. Pretty fantastic. And those are, you know, and I mentioned that because a skill set. so, so much of the foods we eat all have unknown, untapped medicinal health benefits down the line. You think about some of the indigenous ingredients that we use in my culture, like we use hibiscus a lot. We use, you know, we we, we love okra and, you know, that's a mm-hmm. whole different conversation, Cola, about my love for food and its medicinal properties mm. and its cultural ties and, and its significance in cultures. That's a very different uh, podcast talk. But when, with my mother's cooking, it was one of those ways that helped keep the culture feeling there during the very hard adjustment in America. And to know you can still that. have you know, fufu or okra stew or spinach. It was a sense of home, right? Mm-hmm. It was a sense of home. And so, and and the food aspect and how plants are used as food and as forage and as materials for building is a very strong line for me as a Ghanaian. And so that passed on to my children, the importance of it and the health, the healthiness of it. Um, so I just want to mention about my mother and, and that role because it, it plays a big role in what I've been doing in the last 15, 20 years with, as a designer and somebody who has taught also um, at the collegiate level. But I was not familiar with 
oaks, shade trees, not deciduous, um, you know, cherry blossoms, because we live in the mm. DC area, so you know, those are those are a big deal. You know, I had a I had a math teacher who took about eight or so girls from like twenty countries under her wing and we'll go on these trips to DC during spring break um Ooh. and see things I've never seen before. Um, we lived here, but we didn't really explore. The, you know, socially, it's always a hard adjustment being from a different culture. People don't understand you. They don't understand yeah. the way you look. They don't understand the way you speak. They don't understand my diastema. That's a whole new world word people did not know and they still don't know, which is the, the regal gap between my teeth. Um, regal in places regal. of the world. Um, yes. And it, it was all very challenging. And it's one of those one of those experiences where you spend a lot of time with family and a little bit more insular to really try and just survive. And a lot of academics, very big on academics, lots of reading, lots of everything. Um, and eventually, at some point, I started to pick up on stuff around. We never, we always rented, and so we rented an apartment and then we rented a house. And the house had a huge yard, mm. and I'll never forget that this huge yard had plants that I was not familiar with, but I, I liked them, you know? Mm. I remember them smelling really good in spring and they were really dainty and purple and white. And I remember my dad putting it down because he thought it was a weed because, you know, Africans think everything that's foreign is like a weed. Um, <laughs> Similar to yeah. Americans. Imagine that. And so, and it finally took me a while to realize he kept cutting down a lilac bush. And I was like, that was actually really beautiful. Um, oh. <laughs> and it smelled really wonderful. You know, uh, growing, getting older, our high school had these trees, which were always called the fish trees. Come to find out, you know, bad design they in the 1980s. They're all bad for repairs as your courtyard for your cafeteria. FYI, don't do that as a designer. Um, exactly. And I will always remember that smell thinking, what is this? You know, forsythia, really basic plants, though, right? Really mm -hmm. basic, basic green and so forth. That started making me realize there was something fun around that I could get myself into and explore a little bit more. But the whole culture shock of everything was completely there. Um, and you just, you know, the food, the family, just sticking to your academics and, you know, exploring and just learning. Yeah. It's kind of how I survived. And then picking up a musical instrument was my escape. And why was it an escape? Because music is so transformative the connection between your music playing an instrument and learning how to play an instrument and also becoming a, a landscape architect designer mm -hmm. and designing spaces in and recognizing that com comparison between the symphony of it all you're mm -hmm. part of it you put it together it's always a little bit rough in the beginning you get a little better and they're like oh it sounds like something um, I love, and, <laughs> I just love that uh, yeah. comparison. Oh yeah. I mean, you, 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 you create something that, you know, people come to a concert, they listen and it takes their mind somewhere. It mm -hmm. takes their body somewhere. And it's like when you make a, you do a park or you create a space, you physically create a space that transcends somebody's experience. They may not initially see it, but you know, I know we talked a little bit about this. I, I always wanted to create the places I want to be in. How greedy is that? Because yes. um, I want to no. feel good. <laughs> I want to feel no, because <sighs> free. When you're when you're a painter or when you are a composer of music or you know a rapper, singer, whatever, you want to sing the songs that you want to sing. You know, right. you want right. to make the thing 
that is going to be pleasurable for you and that is relevant. And I'm going to tell everybody why it's because when you go into it fully inspired and full of joy, then what you are putting into it is an energy that makes it that much more likely that everybody else who engages with it is going to feel that on some level. They're going to enjoy it. You know, when something is inspired, it's that much more apparent, especially when yeah. it's done well, as yeah. you do. Oh, yeah. If it's done well, that makes a big difference. And, you know, having having enough, I'll say we had enough. We were very fortunate in that we were just grateful with what we had, right? But man, what I would have what I'd have done if we had a community garden growing up or anything mm-hmm. like that, right? Um because you know the the immigrant gardener is, is its own unique Im- individual. I mean, it's it's mm. it's a beautiful thing in itself, um, an old old gardening. But knowing that I get to create spaces, I am given the opportunity to create opportunity for others to be a part of for free. Right? Mm. You don't have to pay to go to our public parks. You don't have to pay to walk through a forested area. Like you just can be there to just take away whatever that edges of the world around you. Even mm-hmm. if it's in the schoolyard, right? That the kids just get to see something they've never seen before, put their hands in the soil, grow up, mm-hmm. grow a tomato, grow lettuce, eat your own strawberries, you know, yes. um, at, at all scales. You know, I spent 12 or so years in the private sector doing really great work. A lot of it institutional as well, be it state department work, do it, you know, K through 12 college campus, corporate campus, and some, you know, you know, uh, municipal work. At the end of the day, it's like you get to shape the experience for others that you really hope improves their well-being and their lives. You also mm-hmm. get to create spaces that if it's not the human, you are restoring a landscape and, a, and an environment from a science perspective, the ecology, the habitat, the the wildlife. You know, you get to give that another chance. You really bring it to life. We were all connected, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think about like the sustainability triangle of social, economical, environmental. I mean, there's a reason Central Park houses and apartments are so expensive. Look at the resource you have right below your building, right? Yeah, the sprawling green space. And I'm glad that you mentioned Central Park because I wanted to turn the conversation to the benefit of trees and okay. how they add so much value to a landscape, the the amenity. Let's let's really get into that. Let's start with Central Park and the value add that trees provide specifically as a landscape architect. So in terms of like Central Park is such an easy target because you know, it's got its own muddy history about the land acquisition Indeed. and whatnot. And, you know, that's the history of a lot of places. Um, but when you think about the trees, it would not be that kind of space if you didn't have canopy um, and you didn't have the good soil or soils to support those trees to live for so long and to recharge the water and to create a space. I mean, mm. We know the benefits of trees, right? We know that trees help us breathe. We know that trees keep our air clean. We know that trees help the soil breathe. We know that trees help our climate be mitigated and you know keep it cool. We know that they give you comfort and shade. 
we also have to think about how they make the mind work. You know, mm. it's so different when you look at Greg and it, versus looking at Green. I mean, it's just amazing that, you know, wow. kids can sit outside, sit in the classroom with trees outside and feel slightly calmer than if they had no windows. The, the benefits of trees are just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clump trees and all plants, but I mean, just like vegetation and trees in particular. I mean, they're they're stately. They're just majestic. They, you know, yeah. they're they're they are their own nature's architecture, their nature's buildings. You know, at mm. a scale that really pulls you in, very much so. Um, mm-hmm. They they really can shape a space more than you probably realize. I mean, you think of all the, the animals that live there and depend on it. Um, mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, think about the experience you get sitting under a tree, climbing a tree, listening to the leaves rustle of a tree. I mean, you great poetry has been written under trees. Many, many a times, many a times. Many people a great poem. People are still singing songs and writing about, you know, Hamilton and Washington. I won't ever tire of living in my own fig tree and, my, mm. you know, live under my own vines, right? So, um, you know, I, I think the value of trees has been always chalked up to like, oh, it's just a tree. But it's like, what is that tree really doing? Do you really see the benefit of it? Because that benefit outweighs so much more than we realize, you know, mm. that keeps that circle, you know, working together, everything is connected. You know, you've got it the is. tree, you've got the soil, you've got good soil, you've got some water recharge, you got some some good water happening. Guess what? You're, you can probably withstand some floods a lot better. Especially. Yeah. Because we're, we are living in a world that is rapidly changing as the result of climate change. Absolutely. And yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that specific connection between the benefit of trees as far as how they help us to mitigate some of the problems that come up in the environments as a result of climate change. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all those reasons. Um, if you're too hot, plant a tree or a lot of them, you know, take that mm-hmm. temperature down. Let those storms not be so, you know, as strong as they may be without them. Let that water be captured somehow, you know, mm-hmm. give it a sink source so that you can you can capture it. You know, those roots are working hard for a reason. Um, you know, where we've got some concerns with pollinators. Absolutely. Where do you think they're going to hang out? You know, the leaf litter of any kind of tree yeah. and, and other plants. You know, there's the cities are seeing changes drastically when they rethink their urban forestry and canopy approach. You know, mm. more people want to live there. More people want to feel comfortable. It's an interesting perception, but a well-tested one that, you know, safety in neighborhoods and communities, you feel you, there is a safer um, safety, you know, there's less crime in areas that have trees. Imagine wow. that. Imagine that. Why? Imagine because there's, it. there's more invested socially and culturally when there's trees around. People are out. Somebody cares mm. about about those about that vegetation. There's care going on. There's intention going on. And when you've got that and eyes and people around, well, that's not the kind of place that crime wants to take place in, right? Mm-hmm. Find me a barren spot that looks very un- unkind. I'm there. But trees, on the <laughs> other hand, you know, you've, we've seen all these studies from SEPTED and you know, crime prevention through uh, design that the sheer presence of them. It's, it's amazing what it does even on that level. But, you know, I, I think utilizing the trees as green infrastructure solutions 
for a lot of the challenges we're seeing. Wow. You know, I, it, that's it just, a good way to put it. You have to. It, the environment is its own green infrastructure if we do it well and do it well and right. And mm. there's a lot of really smart strategic landscape architects working that really hard. You know, I think of the woman-led company Scape up in, in New York, Kate Orff and her group. And, you know, they're looking at all these locations, New Orleans and so forth. And how do you address a lot of those environmental challenges? And it's through, you know, environmental solutions. Through Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you're doing your, you're really doing some of that landscape architecture work there. And then you're really working with the vegetation. You're working with the trees. You're working with you know, soils, you're trying to divert and really push, you know, navigate how water moves and breathes. So it's really, I mean, there's just so much that you can contribute to increased canopy as a whole habitat. Um, it's, it really can have a life of its own to support the world in reality. I mean, it sounds cliche, but, you know, it can do a lot. It can do a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. It there's there's a lot going on. I like that you mentioned the roots of the trees are working really hard. People don't really think about the roots. And that's 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 just worth, you know, tapping into that again. But I like that you mentioned an example of one of your favorite firms. And so I want to ask, you know, do you have did you have a particular example? of a mentor in the landscape architecture space or someone who deeply inspired you? Hmm. I didn't have an explicit mentor and I still do not have an explicit mentor, but I have learned a lot from really great seasoned professionals in the field. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, one of my first bosses, um, what is a female uh, and runs her own firm. And, mm -hmm. you know, she went to school and was trained by Ian McCard, who created the Design by Nature philosophy up at Penn and had a really strong sense of this environmentally led design approach, right? We're talking mm -hmm. from the 60s and 70s. So she mm -hmm. has been doing this a long time and still has that fine craft to have design overlap the environmental and vice versa. And so I I got to see how Faye weaved it in so naturally with everything she she did. Um, and then I had, I, I, I was very fortunate to work with a firm formerly known as EDAW that a lot of those principals and the leaders there also have that same uh, study. I mean, you can't, I think those who came through the 60s and 70s, that landscape portion of landscape architecture really had a strong ecological drive to how they yeah. learned the craft. And you could see it in everything, everything they did. Um, mm. And so I, I learned from, I learned by really watching their solutions, keeping up with all the trends, but never falling away from how do we resolve this ecologically, but also make it aesthetically beautiful and 100% functional. So mm. I was really fortunate to have a lot of leaders in my two firms who got it 
And yeah. they you, and you see it on every scale, on the small scale, on the big scale. They would always come with that angle. And then even working abroad on different projects internationally where you're working in sub-Saharan Africa to do high-class sort of landscape architecture, you but you got to work with that environment or else it's not going to work, right? So that same yeah. sensibility really transcended. So, you know, not one mentor, but really a collection of really sharp, inspirational individuals who knew how to design well, um, who knew how to communicate well, because we do a lot of communication to the public and mm-hmm. to our, our internal colleagues, um, who also had these visions, right? You, you never stop learning. You travel places, Definitely. you see things, um, and you would think, how can we bring that into the spaces we, we create? So I would say I'm fortunate I have a collection of, of good mentor collection example and ex- exposures that i think have really been they've helped shaped the way i i work as a professional you, you take a lot from what you learn from them and you hope to do it justice and, and proud that you can overlap them in the work you're doing going back to that landscape of memory just your cultural background and coming from a different country and having seen so many different places knowing <clears throat> the range of experience that you draw from as a Black woman, how has that made your contributions to landscape architecture unique? I feel strongly that individuals will never only work with people just like them. And the public we serve, the clients we serve, public or private, regardless of where you are, chances are these individuals are very different than than, than the designer. Different mm-hmm. experiences, different backgrounds, different value uh, approach of landscape. Some people are just happy to have a green that just sits in the middle of a community so they can congregate with their friends, play a game, have a barbecue. The value is so different for individuals and you never know how something that seems small makes such a big difference. It's something for everyone. So, I mean, I think what I, what I try to do when I put a lot of myself into the work I do is really allow everyone to have that same feeling of enjoyment, of freedom, of comfort, of, of awe, of wonder, um, that you just don't have everywhere you go, you know, making these spaces in the middle of concrete jungles. It's critical. You know, softening it up, you know, using somebody's individual backyard, even like a streetscape, you know, all of these spaces really are a part of a person's experience. And you just never know what's going to stick with them and put them on this path for a love of trees, of nature, of birds, of of sound, of music, of rhythm, just to let them dream. It's, you know, it's priceless. It's priceless. I agree. And and very well said. And the thing that stood out the most was the notion of how the plants in in the world are just diverse. That's biodiversity, right? That's an uh, aspect we need brought into all of the things we do as humans, especially when we consider how we're building this world. We're continuing to add things. It's just so important that we are aware of how we can create more balance with nature by Mm -hmm. being more nature 
focal, nature-centric. Mm-hmm. We've talked about quite a bit and made some great yeah. points. And hopefully, Soil Cousins, you can look into some of the names that were mentioned. I'm hoping <laughs> y'all are really digging deeper. Is there any kind of project or anything that you want to emphasize? I know you work in the, what do you call it, the public sector? Yep. Yep. I want to shout out anything. <laughs> well, I would say, so I, I currently, I work for Arlington County in, in Arlington, Virginia, in the Department of Parks and Recreation. Um, mm-hmm. And I will say I'll toot our horn. We're number three park system in the U.S. Um, but there's a lot mm. of us that it takes. <laughs> there's a lot of us in our department that it takes to make to get to there. Um, there's a whole host of us who maintain, who build, who design, who plan to make these spaces really, really rich. So if you're ever in the DC area, you know, you may travel through Arlington between Alexandria City and of course the fantastic spaces in Washington, DC and Smithsonian gardens mm. and all the museums and the National Arboretum and the Botanical Garden. Mm-hmm. I mean, this area is is has a really nice wealth and diversity of really wonderful environments, landscapes to to explore, to be a part of. One thing that I will have to emphasize is that every site it has a history. And mm-hmm. so and this area is rich in history. And you can kind of see how that is expressed in the landscape and how the landscape forms to shape that historical knowledge. It's not just pretty. There there's always meaning and function. We've got lots of nice trees and wonderful landscapes everywhere. Check out the DC area. When you go to Arlington, Virginia, you very likely could find yourself engaging in a space that has been designed by our incredible guest, Jeanette Ancoma Say. And we are very appreciative of having you share this space on Black in the Garden. And I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. You have arrived at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking, hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. 